Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Autosport WEC review of the season. The 2023 FIA World Endurance saw the hypercar category enter a new era as seven manufacturers lined up for the opening race of the season. It promised so much and while Toyota came out on top, it delivered some incredible racing battles and some standout drives and team performances. My name is Steph Wentworth and I am delighted to be joined by Autosport's own Gary Watkins and WEC commentator, WEC world champion and former F1 driver, Anthony Davidson, to take a look back at a fantastic year for the sport. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Steph. Great to be here with you and Gary. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, a season that I really enjoyed and a season I've been looking forward to for so many years of my very long career. Well, Gary, let's talk about how excited you were ahead of the start of the season, because coming into Sebring, you know, the expectations were high and everyone was very much looking forward to the season ahead. Well, I'm going to say those golden words that I keep uh, getting told off for. And there, I've blown it, haven't I? Because I've said the word golden already. We've all been predicting this is a golden era with new rules that have brought in all these manufacturers. And yes, it is a golden era. Uh, And so I'm going to keep on saying it because we've got seven, we had seven makes this year, five OEMs, two sort of what I call garageists. We've got more coming next year, at least one more the year after. So it really is something special, uh, something that has not happened before in my career. And I'm going to have to tell you that my uh, trip to Le Mans this year was my 33rd as a journalist. So I have, I have been around the block a bit and Sports car racing, you know, centered on Le Mans and the World Championship has never been as strong. So, yes, I was very, very excited. And what were your kind of expectations once you landed in Sebring? What were you expecting from the season ahead? Well, like Gary was saying, you know, first and foremost, it was exciting because for the first time in a long, long time, we had more competitors taking the fight to Toyota. It had been Toyota's stomping ground, hadn't it, the last couple of seasons on the build-up to this season. And, you know, obviously the expectation was that Toyota would be the benchmark. They they were the ones with the target on their back, the ones for all to try and beat. Um, but there was also a level of anticipation and expectation in terms of more teams coming uh, to take that fight to them. And that's something we'd been just chomping at the bit for, relishing the fact that we would finally, after all this time of, let's be honest, Quite a few dry seasons of the World Endurance Championship since we uh, we waved goodbye to LMP1 proper and Porsche and Audi, left Toyota really to run rings around the, the remains of, of what we could call competition. Now, this was the real deal. You know, we had Ferrari and Porsche and Cadillac and the list goes on, all joining the mix to try and take victory, not just from the first race, but the whole season, Le Mans included, and that's what we 
came up. That's what we went there to see. And all season long, we weren't disappointed. And on that topic of some brand new manufacturers coming in, the first weekend at Sebring saw Ferrari put it straight on pole. Gary, did that surprise you? Was that something you were expecting? Yes, it did surprise me. And I don't think I was the only one who was surprised. And I'm going to say that the excitement stretched right into the Ferrari pit. They weren't expecting to put it uh, to see their car, the 499P, a Le Mans Hyde car on pole. Uh, but there it was. Antonio Fuoco pulled out uh, a mega lap. I think it really was something special. Round, when he came around the last corner, he couldn't see. He was blinded by the uh, by the sun in his eyes. They call it, well, we most people call it turn 17, but it's also referred to as uh, sunshine curve sometimes. Uh, he couldn't see. He put it on pole. I thought, well, that, that was pretty amazing. So, yes, it was a surprise, I think, to everyone which including Ferrari and, of course, uh, Toyota. And Ant, just talking about Ferrari a little bit more, uh, they were kind of rookie rivals of Toyota uh, and that meant that more of Toyota's rivals actually this year were kind of rookies. They were new to uh, to the class, they were new to hypercar. Did that make Toyota's job a little bit easier? Uh, that The fact that all of their rookies, all of their rivals were rookies and were new to the championship? Well, I think at different points, and the first race included, at different points throughout the the, the season, we saw sporadically the pace of others come and go. I think more often than not, others seem to have the outright pace, as Ferrari proved right from word go in Sebring. They arrived, they looked quick in practice, they looked like a a, a well-oiled machine straight away, fresh out of the box, their brand new car. And the drivers were, a lot of them straight out of GT racing, um, but looked very at home in the new hypercar category. So, uh, And they knew their way around Sebring as well. So they had the speed, but it became apparent immediately when we had the, the green lights at the start of the race that Toyota had something else up their sleeve. They had experience. That goes a long, long way in endurance racing. And it's not just the experience of how you set your car up or how the drivers feel behind the wheel. It's just operationally that you need to be super slick and at the top of your game. And that's what we saw from Toyota. I would say definitely the first half of the season, they were head and shoulders above the rest. I'm kind of glad that they were in many ways because it shows it's not easy. You know, you might be called Ferrari or Porsche, but you turn up trying to beat a team that's been there for years in in their 11th season doing this uh you know it's not easy and you can have the speed but they didn't have the operational prowess of toyota and and that's really what held them back uh in in those long races so um it it took a while you could see how green people were at the beginning drivers included um but not toyota they hit the ground running and really stamped their authority early on in the championship I'm so glad you mentioned their operational prowess because you actually talked about that in the very, very first weekend of commentary. And clearly you still maintain that that's the difference in the end, that that was where they made up uh, the difference against their rivals. So I guess for you, it wasn't really a great surprise that Toyota ended up taking both the the drivers and the constructors championship. No, that's the thing over, over a whole season, you know, you've got to be strong. Um, that's, you know, the beauty of Le Mans is that it's a one day event and you can be good on that one day and walk away with so much glory. But to win a, the championship, you need to be there from the beginning all the way through to the end, including Le Mans. And uh, that's exactly what Toyota had this season compared to the competition. Uh, next year might be a very different story. And also that second half of the season, we were already seeing a, a much more slick operation from all of the the newcomers uh, even Peugeot I'd still class him as a newcomer they only joined with a, a few races to go last season uh, and you know you could see at different points they were learning the mechanical uh, elements of their car reliability was a big problem for so many others uh, and Toyota seemed to have have that sorted as well so you know they, they had so many strings of their bow that yeah, I'm not surprised in many ways that uh, that the others couldn't beat them over the, the course of the championship. Uh, but 
like I say, at different points throughout races or or different events we went to, you certainly saw the speed was there and the threat was becoming more and more real every single race that we that we went through in the championship. Absolutely. Gary, would you would you say the same? Would you say that you expected Toyota to come out on top over the course of the season? Yeah, if I was a betting man, of course I'd have put my money on uh, Toyota uh, for all the reasons that Ant said there. You know, Toyota's been in the WEC since 2012, since, you know, when he started driving with them. They're a well-oiled racing machine. And I think there are a couple of other key reasons why they came out on top. As, as Ant said, one lap speed, we saw it straight out of the box, Ferrari, bang on pole. But in a race over a stint and crucially over a double stint on the tyres, which you have to do in wet, not not every time, but the tyre allocation means that you have to do a certain number of doubles over the course of a, of a race. They just had so much better uh, performance on the tyres right through to the end. They, they uh, lived with the deck much better. Than, than their rivals with. And that's all their rivals, not just Ferrari. And I think that was very key. Tactically, Toyota very seldom make mistakes. And let's not forget that the others were newcomers. They were learning about the WEC. Okay, you say the, the factory Ferrari team is AF Corsa. They've been there in GTE Pro and, and GTE and uh, forever. But still, they were moving up to the front of the field. So the way you... Uh, react to a safety car or a four course yellow for example is is different uh, and we saw it within a few laps of the start at Sebring there was a safety car and uh, Ferrari did something they pitted one of their cars I thought really and it, it was a tactical error and you know we saw uh, further tactical errors from Ferrari through the year um, perhaps a few more penalties than Toyota it'd be interesting to do a tot up of those but yeah I think um, Toyota is just, it's been there, it's done it, it's got that ingrained experience. They, the way they overcome problems uh, uh, at the back end of the season at Bahrain, they had a clutch issue and they overcame the clutch issue uh, just in an interesting way. You know, they, they sussed the problem, they realized what they had to do. They, they had to start on the hybrid system, but they couldn't start in first gear and as we all know it's easier to bump start an engine in second gear than it is the first gear and things like that it's just yeah they they can think on their feet and they just have a, a deep well of experience excellent well this year saw many changes in the regulations including changes to balance of performance that was introduced this season now gary could you explain a little bit about the regulations explain a little bit about it in simple terms for everyone listening in simple terms now that's that's going to be tough basically the balance <laughs> of performance in sports car racing and, and it's been part of the scene for knocking on 20 years now not at the very pinnacle uh, in the top classes but down in the gt ranks over in sort of uh, the other realms of sports car racing sort of not the aco uh, world championship realm yeah it's we're all too familiar with it. BOP has been part of the new hyperclass since the beginning in uh, 2021. And there was a new, a new way, a new system, a new new protocols, new whatever you want to call them, introduced for this year. And it's very much based on simulation and assessing the potential of the car. And there was l less scope than previously to change the BOP. In, in 21 and 22, uh, the, the sort of basically the BOP could be recalculated after two races, you know, it depended on sort of the conditions. If it was a wet race, uh, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't count, for example. But now we had a system where the BOP was pretty firm up to Le Mans. There could only be one change and that change could only be in terms of the balance between the two different car types of car that race in the hypercar and that they are confusingly called Le Mans hypercar which is your Toyota, your Ferrari, uh, your Peugeot and the LMDHs uh, which is which for the moment in or for in 2023 in uh, WEC was just Cadillac and Porsche and the reason for that is slightly different rule sets front hybrids for the LMHs 
rear hybrids for the LMDHs. So there could only be one change which was meant to come or could come only after two races. Then there would be a major change after the one where they could sort of tinker with the whole BOP. Then for the rest of the season, another change after two races set in stone for the rest of the year. So that was how uh, it was meant to be. Now, do you want me to tell the rest of the story or should we, is that for later? We're talking A about- A story is excellent. Well, okay. The, the story then continues that this was set in stone and the idea was to avoid sandbagging, you know, going more slowly uh, than you can to try and get a favorable BOP, possibly, probably with an eye on Le Mans. It's been done before in the GT ranks and I don't want to mention uh, manufacturers by name, but they know who they are. Uh, so that was that was the big, one of the sort of guiding principles or the, the reasons for introducing this new system well, we come up to Le Mans. We didn't get a, 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 race, a change in the balance between LMH and LMDH after two races. We're coming up to Le Mans and we got just a few days before the cars were due on track at the Le Mans test date, which is the weekend ahead of Le Mans. We got a new BOP with tinkering right across the board of the five manufacturers and the two uh, independents. And this was highly controversial because it was outside of the guidelines laid down uh, by the rulemakers, that's the ACO and the FIA. So that was highly controversial. And the reason they gave for it was that the gaps, they said, between the uh, LMHs, so I'm talking about uh, Toyota Ferrari Peugeot again, were too big. So there needed to be a readjust a readjustment. Well, that rhetoric, the gaps between the LMH is too big, uh, basically uh, is code for Toyota was too quick and won the first two races pretty much as they pleased. Now, that's that's me being slightly cynical, but clearly that was one of, one of the reasons for the change and the organisers could not have uh, a runaway victory at Le Mans. And don't forget that this was the centenary running of the uh, Le Mans 24 hours. So a very, very important uh, event for the ACO. Uh, so the BOP was changed sort of as a fait accompli. The manufacturers were phoned up and told, well, actually Zoomed up in these days. There was a Zoom meeting and they said, yeah, BOP is changing. Sorry that we're doing that. Was that simple enough or... Uh... Simple enough indeed, yes. But how could we forget? It was the centenary edition and Ferrari did take that historic victory at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. But that wasn't just down to the BOP changes and was it? There were more factors at play that, that meant that Ferrari got that victory. Yeah, absolutely, Steph. You know, Gary described it really well. The story behind the BOP, you know, from a technical standpoint. The problem that I think the ACO and the FIA had though was that naturally, as we've already touched on, the new teams were getting faster anyway. And of course, I'm sure they all play the game somehow. It's part and parcel of BOPs. That's why I very rarely talk about it because they're all they're all playing around for that one big race in the season, Le Mans. And then on top of that, it's the centenary as well. The one they desperately want to win. New team, Ferrari. They return to the top five world sport, uh, sports car championship. And of course, they must have known, we can't really expect to win the championship in our first year, but we'll have a damn good go at Le Mans. And by that time in the year, they were ready. Operationally, they were ready. Very slick. A very different team that turned up to Sebring. And they had a little tickle of BOP as well. I'm sure Toyota would argue not just a tickle, a massive uh, footprint in the sand of BOP uh, handed their way. But in reality, it wasn't that much of a difference. And I had been seeing their performance getting better and better all the way through, continuously through the season. Uh, they had a difficult spa, uh, but they showed speed there when they could get their tyres working. I think it was such cold conditions. I think we had six degrees ambient uh, at the lowest point in Spa, and they really struggled with their tyres. Um, this is what went against them in Sebring. They were overheating their tyres, but in in Spa, they just couldn't they couldn't run the harder tyre, the one that they needed to be on 
And that really went against them there. That's why they started the race in the rain. The whole race went against them. But when they could switch their tyres on they were, and got the car into the sweet spot, they were fast. I saw strengths on their car. They had good top speed. The car looked very efficient. It looked easier to drive on, uh, you know, on those faster circuits. And I just had a feeling that despite any BOP change, they were going to be a threat to Toyota. And then they turned up and they were a little bit quicker. And uh, and Toyota knew it. They were, I mean, I think Toyota handled it brilliantly well for how seething they were uh, and how disappointed they were to not have the fastest car. And my goodness, they tried and they made it as hard work for Ferrari as they could possibly make it. And that I think that's what made it such a spectacular event. Incredible centenary edition. I'm not sure there's much more that we could have asked for in that race. It gave us everything. How big of an impact, Ant, do you think Ferrari's win at Le Mans was? Because they are a huge manufacturer. Uh, the scarlet red is absolutely iconic throughout the world of motorsport. It was a really important win, wasn't it? It was a massively important win, not just for Ferrari, but for the World Endurance Championship as well. You know, it was... it it. it was a, 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 a you know a seal of approval, wasn't it, for the championship? Ferrari have arrived, and people came to watch. I've never seen a Le Mans crowd like it. I've never seen, uh, in in general, a World Endurance Championship crowd like it all season long. We went to Monza later in the year after Ferrari's win, of course, and it was I mean it was big news here in the UK. It was massive news. Back at Maranello in, in in Italy, they were parading the streets. Uh, it was like a team that had just won the World Cup final. It, it was impressive scenes. <laughs> and when we went to Monza, they were out there. The same crowd that would come to Formula One races were there to watch that scarlet red Ferrari, you know, quickly becoming an iconic car. Um, and 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 it really captured the imagination. And actually, Ferrari fans are Tifosi they finally had something to get behind and be proud of because, you know, they delivered. And that's what they've been waiting for in Formula One, in the Formula One world for so many years since Kimi Raikkonen uh, won the championship. And, and you know, finally they they had this this beautiful car and, and, and excellent team in the World Endurance Championship to really cheer on, knowing that they had a, a serious chance of victory and pole positions and general success moving forward from that point on. Yeah, and just to add to what Ant said there, going back to my earlier point about tyre wear and how Toyota handled tyre deg better than their rivals. Now, we get to Le Mans, the tyre allocation is different. Uh, and of course, as Ant knows bet far better than I do, Le Mans with its long straights is not a high deg circuit. So one of the disadvantages that the Ferrari had certainly at the first three races and again after Le Mans, but we really did see it uh, at the as the first two races, that's Sebring and uh, Portimao, wasn't a factor at Le Mans because, uh, yeah, you're not just putting the same amount of uh, load through the tyres at, at Le Mans, uh, you know, so consistently because you have you have so much straight, basically. And that, and that really was... Uh, a significant factor and okay the BOP changed after Le Mans and it and this little tickle as uh, Ant said that helped them they got tickled the other way and uh, you know were, were certainly less competitive but I think um, you know they were again handicapped by the fact that they just weren't as good over a double stint on a set of Michelin tyres as Toyota. Yeah, and absolutely going forward, I'm sure there are going to be a lot more eyes on the World Endurance Championship now that Ferrari have cemented themselves as a real force to be reckoned with. Uh, and you just touched upon it. We saw huge crowds at Le Mans, Monza, also Spa, these classic tracks which invite motorsport fans. Uh, the growth of the sport, the growth of the World Endurance Championship and sports car racing is really encouraging to see, don't you think, Gary? Well, absolutely. And and as you as you touched on there, Ferrari is so important. They bring so much to any championship they compete in because they're Ferrari. It's as simple as that. So, you know, they put bums on seats, they get people through the door. And clearly at Monza, just a few weeks after Ferrari had triumphed at Le Mans, 
there was going to be a massive crowd, wasn't there, to see the Ferrari racing on home turf for the first time, but also to see the Le Mans winning team racing on uh, home turf. So I think that was very encouraging. But you, you mentioned Spa as well. That's sort of one of the one of the uh, tracks that's been uh, a fixture on the wet calendar since the series was reborn in 2012. And it's got a lot of uh, heritage as a sports car track. So it was good to see a, a crowd, a big crowd there. You know, I'd like to see uh, the the series back at uh, Silverstone. And I'm sure with, you know, we know British fans love sports car racing. We see 50,000, 60,000 of them at Le Mans each year. I'm sure Silverstone would get a great crowd as well. And, uh, and I'm hoping that when we go to Cota that, you know, the new buzz about the WEC will finally bring out a... Uh, uh, a decent crowd at that circuit as well. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about two of the main protagonists, Ferrari and Toyota, but let's have a look at some of the other hypercar teams. Let's take a look at Porsche, Cadillac and Peugeot. The caddies uh, showed flashes of performance here and there. Peugeot led a few races in specific conditions, but they struggled throughout the year with mainly electrical issues. Uh, whereas Porsche made it onto the podium and were racing hard in a few races, genuinely had some good performance. And let's start with you. What are your thoughts on their season? Yeah, it's easy just to talk about Ferrari, but we do that naturally because Ferrari were, I would say, most consistently Toyota's biggest threat and, of course, winners of Le Mans. But yeah, you know, the others were, were there as well and, and had their fair share uh, at different races of the action. Um Cadillac were, were right there from word go in, in Sebring. You know, it's a circuit that the team knows very well. The drivers know very well. Um, they compete a lot of a lot of the time in, in IMSA, in the American version of WEC, of course. And it was clear to see that they knew what they were doing. They knew their way around that track. And one slight advantage that they had compared to their other LMDH runners um, was that they seemed to have slightly better tyre wear. And that really served them well later on uh, in every driver's stint when they were respectively behind the wheel. You could see it was just the car was coming on a bit stronger towards the end of the stint compared to particularly the Porsches that they were, had pretty much a race-long battle with. And Cadillac, were they had a very consistent season, actually. Um, they ran multiple cars at races like Spa and, of course, Le Mans. Uh, they had that massive crash with um, Ringo van der Zander at Spa, that horrific crash in Eau Rouge where they had a power steering problem and uh, poor old Ringo took him offline and really quick into into the barriers. We were glad to see him walk away from that one okay. So yeah, they had a, a bit of a, an up and down season as you'd naturally expect uh, in terms of reliability, but their per- performance as a team, uh, I thought was was very strong. Uh, Peugeot, I, you know, I expected more from them. I really did. I think they expected more. They were the most experienced of the rookies, having joined at the tail end of last season. I really thought that when we went back to races, so like Monza, where they'd been before, I thought naturally they'd be faster than they were. Their reliability still plagued them throughout this season in 2023. And it was a shame to see. I think the drivers were frustrated. The team members were frustrated as well. But they got a bit better towards the end. I think they're very much looking forward to what they've learned with this year's car and correct things going forward for next season. Porsche, I think late on in the championship, we could see they were, uh, I think you said it, uh, they were a genuine threat to Toyota and Fuji. That race really stands out for me. I think they had a a good season. I probably expected a little bit more from them as well, if I'm honest, uh, especially at the beginning of the year, the Penske-Porsche team especially with their credentials in, in both IMSA and WEC from the past uh, and the two forces joining together with a very experienced driver lineup. I, I really thought that they would be more continuously a threat to, and with Ferrari challenging Toyota all the time. But we had to wait for that moment until Fuji where they led the majority of the race, actually. And for a moment, I thought they were going to win it. So that was a, a great race um, for, for them there. Um, yeah, you know, lots of lots of positive points from the season for for all of the the rookie teams, and I think that's what really whets the appetite moving forward to to next year. Oh, definitely, twenty twenty four will be very interesting for those teams. Gary, what did you make of uh, their season in twenty twenty three? Were you also expecting a little bit more from them? 
as 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 we've been saying, I think we both expected Toyota to be on top because, for all the reasons that we've said, they're in, they're the incumbent kings, aren't they, of 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 the WEC. Now, you know, we had the sort of, I think, from the word go, Ferrari were number two in the pecking order, but it was very very close with Cadillac at the start. You know, uh, I think on another day they could have come away with a podium at Sebring. Uh, they didn't get on the podium uh, again. Well, in fact, they only got on the podium once at Le Mans. And I think that's something uh, we really need to talk about, how competitive uh, Cadillac were with their LMDH at Le Mans. I think if you look, they ended up third and fourth. That was third with the regular uh, Ganassi car entered in the full championship and fourth with the extra car that came over from uh, IMSA and was actually the quicker car, had Sebastian Bourdais, uh, a sort of son of Le Mans, who was actually born in a, uh, a hospital at Turret Rouge, so he, he knows his way around there. He was blindingly fast. They actually ended up fourth because uh, they had a bit of a messy race. They were hit up the rear. They had a penalty, uh, a, a significant minute stop go for exceeding tyre pressures. There are another couple of little incidents but that car genuinely had the pace to be in the mix in the Toyota Ferrari battle. Now, whether when push came to shove at the end of the day, you know, as the conditions are changing, a sort of after lunch on uh, on Sunday, if they could have had the pace to match Toyota and Ferrari, um, that's a big question mark and we don't know. And probably the answer is no, but they could have, I think, uh, on another day, Cadillac could have been right there and finished uh, on the lead lap. Now, Porsche showed flashes of speed at Le Mans, uh, but ultimately they sort of withered and they didn't make it into the top six. They had too many little problems. And that was really the story of the first half of their year. They did get a podium in Portimao, but it was a bit sort of more, more by luck than judgment. Now, after the summer break, uh, when, you know, so we had Le Mans closely followed by Monza. Then we had a big break until Fuji. They pitched up with uh, Fuji and I don't think they could have won the ra race, but I think they could have snuck between the two uh, Toyotas on another day. Lawrence Van Tor in the quickest of the two cars made a, a bit of a cheeky move at the first corner, gets the car into the lead and Porsche basically stayed there for four of the six hours. And there were times when, well, to Toyota's frustration, uh, when uh, one of the Toyotas came up behind uh, uh, behind Kevin Estra in the Porsche, he couldn't get past. They then actually flicked positions, Toyota did, to allow the other driver to have a go at him and, and try and get past. So that, that shows you how competitive uh, the Porsche was there. They actually still finished third, even though they had a fueling issue, which was... Um, a bit of a weird thing. They didn't put enough fuel uh, in the car after their reconnaissance lap. So it's a procedural problem. So they came third and did, did what they did whilst the drivers were having to do significant uh, fuel save. So that shows you, yeah, truly they were competitive there. And when we move on to Bahrain, the final race of the year, Porsche was competitive again there. But actually the quickest car there and the top finishing uh Porsche was the uh, Jota car, the the customer car. Uh, uh, Yifei Ye, the Chinese driver, who, who actually just left uh, the uh, employ of Porsche Asia Pacific, uh, was, I think, probably the quickest driver of all over the course of the double stint there. So, so Porsche had a difficult start, but then, you know, really came on strong at, at the end. Now, I'd... Persia, of course, they have this avant-garde uh, concept to their car, no rear wing. They have different size tires uh, to all the other cars in in class. Now, their their performance, yes, absolutely, as you were saying, was uh, was hamstrung at times by reliability issues. You know, they had a gearbox problem, well, actually, a gear selection problem at the first race at Sebring, and they knew they were well, they knew they potentially could have had it have it and actually had a fix in the works for race race two but it really sometimes that car worked 
And we saw it at Le Mans. It was quick, especially in the sort of changeable conditions on Saturday evening through the night. Uh, and then we saw it again at Monza, a circuit that doesn't have slow corners, so many slow corners. Now, where you have slow corners, that car with its uh, lack of rubber at the rear, because it has uh, equal size front and rear tyres, really struggled. And looking back to Sebring, clearly that was going to be an issue for them there on a, on a sort of bumpy, low-grip surface. So um, basically, yeah, Toyota's performance really was based on two things. One, if they're reliable, and B, if the circuit suited their car. And sometimes it did, and sometimes it didn't. And Monza was clearly the best circuit for them, where they, they led on pace, whereas at Le Mans, they sort of led because of the conditions and some good strategic calls but they're fast enough at Monza to lead the race and actually uh, get their first podium but that inconsistency across all circuits is why they are abandoning the uh, current uh, philosophy of the original 9x8 and they're going to the bigger tyre at the rear and I'm pretty sure we're going to see a rear wing on the car as well. Analysis of of Peugeot season uh, Gary is that I, I really felt that with them not having a rear wing, maybe it's too simplistic to look at it this way, but it was more of a ground effect car. And now, you know, because of Formula One, we've all become accustomed to ground effects, what it is, the floor doing the majority of the work the work that pulls the car down, the majority of your downforce comes from the floor. It means that to make it work efficiently, you have to run the car lower. And if you go to a bumpy circuit like Sebring, where the car's bouncing all around, you lose so much of that valuable downforce the floor is trying to create. And I think on top of their tire issues, as you've mentioned, it's they were suffering with their with their overall concepts as well. Uh, you know, the, some of these tracks you go to in the World Endurance Championship are a little bit rough and ready as Sebring is. You know, it's renowned for its bumps, and um, we've got Austin as well, of course, coming up next year, which is uh, a, another bumpy track. So you know that that kind of concept, you get the porpoising, you get a lot of bad effects from from that uh, from the way they were running their car. Well, I think we can all agree that those three teams have had their challenges uh, throughout the 2023 season. Uh, And we'll move on to 2024 in a little bit, in a little moment. But looking back at 2023 for one last time, what are your standout performances? And what's your standout moment of the season? And let's start with you. I think the standout performances really for me was the car number seven crew in Toyota. They had some bad luck this year. Uh, they had uh, an FIA uh, torque sensor fail in Portimao when it looks like a dead surf for victory. The car was reliable apart from that. So there's nothing that the team did wrong and it, it put them out of the race. You know, they scored very little points that weekend and it looked like they were, like I say, were, were on for victory. And then Le Mans, they got uh, slammed up the back when Kobayashi was driving uh, under a, a, a slow zone and really caught out of there and wiped out of the race. It would have been interesting to see how they would have got on as well with that Ferrari fight. But I think that the driver crew were were pretty much impeccable this year. Um, I think Kobayashi is always phenomenal in qualifying. He's always, he always turns the speed up there. And then you've got Mike Conway, who for me is just the epitome of what a sports car racer should be. You know, he goes about his work in such a professional way, rarely makes mistakes. Uh, I think he had one practice shunt at Le Mans this year that's all that's the only bad thing that happened to him all season uh, and that was in the in the pre-race test as well not even in the proper race week testing so yeah I think he he for me was a real standout this year he goes about his work quietly methodically but he's always fast in the race and I think you know right up until the end of the championship they didn't give up that fighting spirit that they started with even though they knew it was a long shot in Bahrain to try and overcome the uh, the sister car, number eight, that walked away with the championship. But uh, yeah, I mean, of course, the standout, the true standout for me was commentating things about two hours into the race where we saw a fight, a genuine fight of six or seven cars, line astern, coming down the, the Mosan straight. I remember thinking... I'm not sure I can do this yeah. for 24 hours, <laughs> let alone driving the cars like they were. But even talking about it was just, it was like talking about the end of a horse race. 
That was that was magic. Of course. I'm sure that we'll never forget that one going down the Molson Street. It was absolutely crazy. So many mo- moments that are absolutely iconic throughout this season. Gary, let's come to you and talk about your standout moments and standout driver performances. Do you agree with Anne uh, regarding the number seven Toyota? Well, for me, the standout driver was Antonio Fuoco. Um, you know, we were banging on about his two poles, the pole out of the blue uh, at Sebring. And then uh, going seven tenths quicker than his teammate, Alessandro Pierguidi, when there was that Ferrari lockout at uh, Le Mans. Well, yeah, clearly that shows one lap pad pace. But there were times in the races, Le Mans was one of them, where he just, his consistency, his averages, and he was, you know, I, I, I think he actually sort of, you know, outperformed some of his teammates more experienced teammates by a significant margin now you can say at Le Mans that car the the 50 car was on the combat trail because it had problems during the night it lost I don't know 10 laps or whatever so you know you're you're, you're driving slightly differently as as, as Ad will tell you than if you're uh battling okay it was flat out at the front but there's a, a different kind of nothing to lose flat out and flat out uh, battling for the lead so clearly you know you bang the curbs at Le Mans you can gain uh, a lot of time but there are other times when I was just I just thought yeah that kid's a bit bit special so he was the standout driver for me I'm going to say the, the the magic moment and it's not really a moment because it's sort of a, a prolonged period uh, of a you know a few hours and it was just as odd, sort of after lunch around lunchtime at Le Mans uh on the on the Sunday as a sort of the balance was changing that you know Ferrari had a little problem uh Toyota got ahead but Ferrari was quicker and sort of uh Piquidi had that uh got around the outside of Waymi I think uh this second chicane was it you know in it or, or you know they had a great battle as Ferrari got back in the lead looked like yeah yeah Ferrari's got the quicker car but then the 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 track was changing, the temperatures were changing, and then uh, Toyota came back into it. And uh, Brendan Hartley was catching uh, Collado, I think, uh, for the lead. And we saw, for suddenly, we've got a race on our hands. You know, what had been, a, you know, 20 something seconds came down to like nine, nine or 10 seconds. And then uh, Rio Hirakawa got in the car and he, he had that sort of heart wrenching spin at Arnage where he, you know, front and rear, he he tagged the uh, the barriers, and then it was then it was sort of game over. We thought Ferrari were just going to cruise to victory, but then they had a recurrence of that uh, electronic glitch that brought Toyota back in into the frame, uh, and there was that sort of you know heart in the mouth moment with uh, Pierre Guidi with like half an hour to go, fiddling with the switches, which were sort of up on the roof uh, of the uh, of the Ferrari to do one of those reboot reboots that we see with hybrid racing cars so often. Of course, many, many incredible moments throughout the season, as you've both just picked up on. But we've spent a lot of time talking about Hypercar and their moments. And let's take a little bit of time to talk about LMP2 and LMGTEM, which we'll be leaving actually at the end of 2023, but we'll come on to that. Let's start with LMP2, and because there were some terrific battles between the WRT, United Autosport, the Inter-Europol, and it was the WRT which came out on top in the end. But there were some incredible battles all season long, wasn't there? Yeah, they really were. I mean, LMP2, it always brings the action. And in many ways, it's the purest or was the purest category within the WEC because pretty much everyone races with the Orica chassis. There are other choices, but they all end up with the Orica. And you've got the Gibson normally aspirated V8 engine as well. And there's nothing you can do to the cars. You're stuck on uh, Le Mans downforce for the whole season now these days. And you can't tinker with any of the suspension or you can't upgrade your car in any way. So it brings a lot more focus to, to the drivers. And yeah, I, I think the uh, the Robert Kubica car crew um, this season, they, they, they won the championship. I think they had a such a dominant year. You look at different races, you know, there's always... There's always, uh, you know, safety car periods and, and, and in Le Mans you have the slow zones and, and things like that that really disrupt their races because they're so close uh, that any moment that a, a safety car situation brings, it kind of scatters the field a little bit sometimes. And they were the benefactors of that a few times, but they always had the speed. 
United Autosport, they, they had a lot of speed as well this season. I still feel like they should have won the opening race. Uh, they had some technical issues where uh, I think it was, uh, I believe that like something to do with the onboard camera that went wrong and that somehow shorted the whole car when they were in the lead of the race. And Josh Pearson um, was, was driving the stint of his life uh, the silver driver in that car crew, uh, and and yeah, he he came to a grinding halt. So that that race really got away from them, and I feel like then that gave yeah it it gave the forty one car crew uh, you know a, a chance to really build a a healthy lead in the championship, and they were never headed. So yeah, it's um I, I've always enjoyed watching LMP two. There were some great battles all season long, up and down the grid. We can't forget into Europol's victory at Le Mans, the surprise victory, stunned the whole paddock, I think, including themselves. Uh, they never saw that performance coming, but they had a big turnaround from halfway through the year and really boosted the whole team's morale, of course, uh, after that victory. So, yeah, some some fantastic moments. They will be there, of course, next year at Le Mans, but uh, not for the whole World Endurance Championship. And it's a shame not to see them there, but... It's for good reason. It's because the hypercar category is growing and the, and the, the GT uh, category or GT3 as it will be next year now. We wave goodbye to GT Pro-Am. Uh, so we, yeah, they, they were fantastic cars as well. But uh, it's a shame not to have LMP2, but basically the tracks aren't big enough to accommodate all of these amazing categories and, and teams and drivers. Many of the teams and drivers will remain from LMP2. Uh, there'll be... They'll be working in hypercar. They'll be joining us. WRT will run the BMW next year. Uh, and others will drive in, in, in GT3. Other drivers will be in hypercar. So, you know, lots of familiar names, both drivers and teams will still remain in the championship, just not LMP2 until we get to Le Mans. And we've had a wonderful season to say goodbye to the LMP2. But another category we'll be saying bye to is the LMGT, um, which will be replaced by the GT3. Corvette this year were the incredible dominant team and they wrapped up the championship about halfway through the season, Gary. It was incredible for them, from them. It was such a dominant campaign. I mean, they, they actually sometimes say, oh, well, we weren't so dominant. You know, if you look at, you know, quite often we won because uh, when we weren't the quickest team. I think, I think mm, I'm not sure of that. You know, for me, if they didn't win the championship, something was wrong. They were a factory team, Corvette Racing, who were sort of dipping their toe in GTEM because they came into WEC last year, their first full WEC campaign in 2022 in GTE Pro. Now they came into AM essentially because next year, uh, Corvette Racing have a new car, a Corvette GT3 car, uh, and with GT3, by regulation, you have to sell them to customers. And so they're learning about working with customers. The, the Ben Keatings of this world, who was the guy who financed the, the campaign this year. And it kept, it kept a, a foot in the door for them in the uh, World Endurance Championship. So, so that was really important. But, you know, they are one of the crack GT squads in the world. Uh, they've been there, done it in uh, Le Mans over in America as well. Uh, so yes, they're the best team, but they also had the best driver lineup. Now, Nicky Katzberg is the pro in that lineup and you're only allowed one pro. And, you know, obviously Katzberg um, is a great GT driver. You know, he's won Spa. He's done phenomenal things at Spa. This year he won Nürburg, uh, Nürburgring 24 hours. But, you know, you could put 10 pros or no, you could probably find a hundred pros who should all be within a tenth and a half of each other, you know, attempt, two temps. Now the bigger differentials are come with the other two drivers in the lineup. Now the rules in GTE and, and allow you one pro, as I said, you must have uh, a bronze rated driver. Now that's for the true amateur. And in this case, it's Ben Keating, who's a 50 something year old car dealer from Texas. And then you have the silver driver, you know, and that's a bit of a gray area. It's always contentious when the, the the driver grading list comes out. But in those two, so that's something in between. Some Sometimes it can be a, a, an up-and-coming single-seater driver who hasn't quite got the results 
to be uh, a gold or a, well, certainly not a platinum, or it could be uh, a really good sort of semi-pro or amateur who is a bit younger than your your sort of uh, Keatings of this world. Now, in those two positions, uh, Corvette Racing had the best drivers. So that was Keating and uh, Nicholas Ferrone, the silver, who has now been upgraded to uh, gold and has become uh, a Corvette Racing factory driver, which sort of shows how how good good he is. So you know, there were times this year when Nicky Katzberg had it easy. His teammates did all the hard work because he normally got in the car last. So yes, Corvette Racing dominated. They wrapped up the title at Monza with two races to go, and this is in a seven-race championship. But but if they didn't win, I think something would have been wrong because they're the best team and they had the best driver lineup. Well, in GT, um, we had to wait until the very final race of the year in Bahrain, but the Iron Danes took a victory. Gary, they're such an important team in WEC, in this sports car world. Uh, what made that victory so sweet for them? Well, what made it sweet for me is that they've been knocking on the door for a sort of a year and a bit, a year and a half. They really sort of emerged as a leading uh, uh, player in GTM. That's that's the lineup of Sarah Bovi, Rahel Frey, and uh, Michelle Gatting. Uh, at the end of at the end of 2022, you know, they've had any number of polls. They've been in the hunt, but they've never quite, you know, been able to deliver. A, on that promise and score a victory. So I think I think for me, at the last time of asking in a GTE car before the new rules come in place with LMGT3 last year, they finally got that victory in the bag. So so I think everyone was happy actually. All right, taking a look ahead into 2024, we have some great races on the calendar. Heading back to Cota, we'll be going to Sao Paulo. And what are you most looking forward to uh, in the season ahead? Well, that's a big question. There's a lot to look forward to, Steph. Uh, well, first of all, like you mentioned, uh, some new circuits, uh, Qatar, one that I've never been around before uh, in anything, um, let alone a sports car and an endurance race. So that will be exciting. Uh, we saw this year in Formula 1 how, how savagely tough that race was uh, in terms of the conditions and uh, things get pretty hot inside these enclosed sports cars. So that will... will, will We'll wait and see uh, how, how the drivers get on there physically. Uh, and then, yeah, he's Kota. I can't wait to see the, the World Endurance Championship back there as much. I, I will miss Sebring uh, for all of its character. Um, we, we talked about the bumps and, and what a what a tight track that is and, and what a challenge it brings to the drivers. But yeah, there's, there's something really special about the circuit, the Americas. Um, a circuit I, I really love to drive around and, and had some good success in my time at. Uh, and I'm excited to see this this new current crop of, uh, of hypercars around there and the GT3s, of course. And uh, I mean, yeah, Interlagos, what a circuit. That If there's one track in the world that you could just pick up and copy and paste in different locations around the world, it would be that one. Um, so yeah, some really, you know, it's a growing championship, one extra race on the calendar as well. Uh, so it'd be up to eight races instead of the seven that we had this year. And it just shows that the championship still continues to grow. And then you've got those extra teams. I can't wait to see the likes of uh, Lamborghini and BMW join the fray as well. There are many others to join, of course, in the future. Uh, it just brings more teams, like I was talking about before, out of LMP2 and Joe to prove, you know, they've paved the way here. They've proven that in the same season, they could go from LMP2 and jump into the hypercar category and, and you know, lead Le Mans uh, for, for a moment uh, and, and really take the fight to the big names in, in, uh, in the hypercar category. So we have other, other teams like WRT running the BMW. Uh, you know, that, that would be phenomenal to watch them at work and, you know, these, these teams have proven their worth in LMP2 and they'll be A-grade by the time they get up to speed in, in hypercar. So yeah, that, that's really exciting. And then I've, I've rarely watched GT3. I'm so accustomed to the GTE cars uh, and, and over the years in WEC, over the last 10 or so years, watching them fight it out. It, I, I'm yet to really get my eye in for GT3 and see what they what they have to offer but uh yeah new categories are always exciting and um just the two categories to talk about of course until we get to Le Mans 
in in many ways, it would make my job a bit easier behind the microphone commentating on it. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, it's it's such a healthy grid. I, I just I cannot wait. We said it before 2023. We couldn't wait to see it. Had all the anticipation, and it didn't let us down. And next year, there's even more anticipation. Well, as Ant has just mentioned, there are going to be some very big names entering the World Endurance Championship in 2024. Gary, who are you most looking forward to see out of those big name manufacturers and big name drivers who will be joining the championship? Well, I'm interested in seeing BMW because I drive a BMW. BMW is such an important part of motorsport history. They, they've always been involved. There's never been a time when BMW haven't gone racing. Uh, since BMW Motorsport was started back, sort of had its origins in the late 60s, then into the 70s. Uh, it celebrated its 50th anniversary, uh, I'm going to say, last year. Uh, so, so yeah, BMW is a motorsport brand. So to see it in my world competing uh, for victory, trying to repeat the victory of one of my all-time favourite sports cars that was the V12 LMR that took victory in uh, at Le Mans in 1999 with the Schnitzer team run by my old friend Charlie Lamb, who sadly died a few years ago, who was just one of the most remarkable and lovely people I've ever met in motor racing. So to see them back going for victory with WRT, who I've just been extolling uh, the virtues of that team, that's, that's as a manufacturer and who's back, I'm really excited about that. Well, in terms of drivers... Like we've got big names coming out uh, of the woodwork. Um, well, maybe that's probably the wrong term. <laughs> big names being signed up by the manufacturers. And I think, you know, uh, it's significant that the, that the championship now has that significance. People are talking about it, it has that uh, traction that some of the names that I'm going to talk about want to do it. Now, we're sitting here on a Friday afternoon in dank and miserable London. Well, I'm sitting here in uh, dank and miserable London. I don't actually know where you are, Steph, but... Uh, Up in Manchester, still dank and miserable, I promise. <laughs> we're sitting here in dank and miserable uh, London uh, on a Friday afternoon. And Jota, if they were on schedule, uh, have just announced a massive name for their expanded two-car team of Porsche 963s. Jensen Button, that's ex-Formula One world champion, Jensen Button, will be doing a full season in that car uh, alongside Phil Hansen, who's a champion in LMP2 with United, and Oliver Rasmussen, who on occasion last year with Jota in LMP2 was was phenomenal. So that's, you know, Jensen Button. It doesn't get much bigger than that. It could have done because we know that Sebastian Vettel was talking to Jota about a seat in, in that car. Uh, and now they were also talking to another driver, I'm just going to mention, who won't be driving for Jota, but he will be moving up uh, to Hypercar, and that's Robert Kubica, LMP2 champion with WRT, is going to be driving a Ferrari 499P. Uh, and now that's not a factory car, but it's a customer car, sort of run on a satellite basis by the factory team, uh, AF Corsa. But I will get our hands uh, slapped if we call it a factory car. It's it's officially billed as a uh, as a customer car. And then one of the other manufacturers we've got coming, that's Alpine. We have Mick Schumacher is going to be uh, at the at the wheel there, and now he's going to be dovetailing his drive. Uh, with uh, Alpine in their LNDH alongside his reserve role at Mercedes. So, uh, and then we've got Daniel Kvyat in, uh, who will be driving Lamborghini. Lamborghini are coming with uh, just a single car to run by the uh, iLynx car. Now their car is an LNDH as well, and they've got you know some big name drivers here, him among them. So. Uh, so yeah, we, we have got some very big names and I'd better talk about one of the names who's going to be driving in LMGT3 and that's Valentino Rossi. Now, he gave up riding bikes, uh, well, professionally at least, uh, a couple of years ago. For the last two years, he's been racing with WRT in uh, G in the GT3 arena, first in an Audi and then when uh, WRT swapped over to BMW, he, he, 
he started racing a BMW with them and also became a BMW factory driver. Now, he's been doing well, the GT World Challenge Europe for the past two years, which is in what I call the sort of SRO arena. That's the Stefan Rattel organization. He's now coming over to the WEC in the BMW M4 GT3 run by WRT. So WRT are going to be running two teams in the WEC, one for LMDH, one for GT3. Valentino Rossi is uh, going to be uh, part of that. So, you know, in, in terms of big names, probably he will be, the, well, he will be the biggest in the uh, um, in the uh, WEC paddock. But when we get to Italy, which next year is going to be Imola and not Monza, I'm sure, you know, that he is going to be a massive center of attention. And, 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 you know, he's just going to bring more people into the circuits, to turn on their tellies, to look at social media or, or, or whatever. He's just going to bring more eyeballs to the WEC. So, you know, I think everyone involved in the WEC and everyone who loves the WEC and everyone who loves sports car racing and Le Mans uh, should be excited about all these big names, including uh, a biker. Well, I am very excited for one and I'm not the only one. I'm sure we can all agree that 2024 promises to be an excellent season. Thank you so much to Ant for joining us and also to yourself, Gary. Yeah, and thank you for having me and uh, sparing me uh, the time uh, to uh, present our little sort of WEC review. Uh, And I hope we haven't gone on too long, but there was a hell of a lot to talk about. And I'm a bit worried that next year, with three extra manuf- free extra manufacturers that uh, yeah we won't be able to wrap it up in such a short time well thanks Steph yeah it's always a pleasure and uh, yeah I'm pleased I could be here with you guys today well we are definitely all looking forward to what promises to be an outstanding season for WEC in 2024 if you enjoyed this video don't forget to click the like button and hit the subscribe button while you are at it but for now all that's left to say is have a wonderful winter holiday and happy new year sports social podcast network